Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And we are the Voices of Reason. And on this episode of the Loud Mouse Project's Voices of Reason, we're joined by Anthony Bates. He's the director of the Student Connection and Leadership Center at Brigham Young University in Provo. And he's also involved in the BYU Family Home and Social Sciences Civil Rights Seminar. And that's something we're going to talk about as well. And uh, Anthony, first of all, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And we, we also forgot, like, your most important connection, and that is that you are that right. uh, the brother of an, from another mother of our colleague and partner in, in, at Loudmouth Media, Jason Comstock. <laughs> yes. Which is how we actually came across you. That's yeah. Right. yeah. So, so give us a little um, insight into your background. Um, how, does, uh, 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 how did you come to be in Provo at BLES? And give us a little... A little... Yeah, yeah. So... Um... My my journey started over in in Germany. My parents met there, um, and uh, they weren't necessarily um, uh, a couple per se. Uh, my wife or my mom was discharged from the military um, when she was five months along with me. Um, she that journey took her to back home to Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, and it was deemed that it would be best for. Um, her to go to Pocatello, Idaho, uh, to stay with my aunt, who uh, was there with her husband doing a, a PhD at Idaho State. So she arrived there as a single mother, um, six months uh, along with me. Um, and so, you know, once I was born there, she she needed someone to take care of me, and she tried to fend her way, and and she tried to um, swing shifts and graveyard shifts and all those kind of things, and so she. She found a family, um, and and they, you know, were were taking care of children, and and that family um, had uh, three sisters and and four brothers, uh, and I ended up becoming the fifth brother, right. um, as I spent significant amount of time at their home. Um, you know, most of my my major childhood memories, stitches, broken arms, those kinds of things, were at the Comstock, uh, Comstock's house. Fortunately, uh, we didn't have the same liability culture that we have now, so I got to live out those <laughs> memories <laughs> um, and, and have them be fond ones. Yeah. Um, and so, so they were um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and and so I got exposure um, to the religion through that, uh, and over time it it settled into my heart and, and it was a choice that I made. Um, cause your parents, to, I mean, your mom wasn't involved in the church before that. 
no, and she's she's still not to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was that was a choice that I made. And and at that time, I I didn't know uh, my father. Um, and so and so yeah, and and that's um, so it, Anthony. Influenced. What was it like growing up? Because your mom is white, your dad is black, but you don't know mm-hmm. your dad. So you're yeah. sort of disconnected to your culture. You're living in Idaho. I don't imagine you had a lot of black friends. Um, no, yeah. I, there what, were. What was that like? There was uh, in my high school. There was one of us in each grade. Um, wow. Okay. Cool. That was the limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it was, um, you know, it, I, I think at the time it was probably just survival, uh, and it, it's probably only now that I reflect on things. I'm like, wow. I, I got through that. Um, I, was it pretty tough? It was. Um, it was. It, it was this. I had I had really good, solid friends um, for majority of grade school, and then um, my my mom got married when I was around ten, and moved across town. I uh, went to a brand new elementary school, and and the kids just treated me different. Um, and I don't know what snaps in a kid's mind when they hit like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, when they start to get into junior high. Um, and it, I really don't think it was till then that I realized I was black, mostly because people were pointing it out to me um, and not in a positive way. It mm-hmm. was very much a delineation, a separation um, kind of situation. And so high school was, um, I, I don't know what amount of money you could pay me to go back. I'm sure there's probably some degree. Um, <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> um, but, it was but, torture, well, but it, torture has a price. Right? Yeah, but but six figures maybe seven, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Right. Um, but but yeah, um, it, it was a challenging experience, and you know there there are pockets of people who who helped me along the way and and that were there, but but for the most part, it was. Uh, I remember I remember a lot of time alone. I remember a lot of time taking my mountain bike and, and going up into the hills and spending just a lot of time reflecting and just trying to sort things out. And you're an only child? I am an only child. Well, yeah. I was an only child at the time right, until, right, right. I, until I met my father later, and then I found out I'm not an only child. When did you meet your dad? Um, I was 26. Okay, and how did that – did you find him? Did he find you? How did that work out? Oh, that's a funny story. Um, <laughs> so – um, I was, uh, my wife, my wife, you know, really insisted and she was like, you know, you, you need to meet your dad, you meet your dad. And, and, you know, with the comp socks, I, and, and, and Vaughn, who, who my mother married, I, I felt like I had father figures in my life. So I, I, I didn't need to go looking for a father per se. And that, that's the way I framed it in my mind. I didn't need to go looking for a father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just don't think she could get her mind around, you know, someone not knowing who their dad was. So, uh, strangely enough, we, this was before family search and ancestry blew up. Um, we, we took a trip to the family history library in, in Salt Lake and, and sat down with one of the sister missionaries there and we're kind of going through some things. Um, and my mom told me where he was from and she told me his name. Um, and that's about all I knew. Uh, and so as we were going through some things, some things popped, a name popped out to me. Um, and he had uh, a couple of children that would kind of fall right about in the same range and maybe potentially when he was discharged. Um, so we took that name. Uh, I got, I got some contact information, uh, from that search that we had done. Uh, and I cold called him on father's day in 2006. 
Um, and it was the funniest my phone man. call because my my first call or the the first time I called, um, I said, "Hey, my name is Anthony Bates. I'm from Warren, Utah. I've I'm just looking for um, Eric it's Waters, cool. and I just got some questions for him." Um, and you didn't say that you anything about that. You just said I just need to talk to him. So so and that's the funny part. So it was my it was my stepmother now who picked up the phone, um, and she said, "Well, he's not here right now." Um, you'll just have to call back later. And she hung up and I just sat there and thought to myself, I sounded like a stupid telemarketer. Um, and so, so I, I, I kind of gathered myself again and I called again mm-hmm. and I said, um, Hey, you know, I, I, I've got some questions for Eric. I think someone that I knew in the military might've known him. And I think, you know, with veterans, I think that's the kicker right there. Mm-hmm. When you, when you say that magic, you know, military inroad, then it's like, and she was like, Oh yeah, baby, let me go get him. Um, right. And so I got on the phone with him, kind of talked through some things. Um, and I, I kind of tap danced around why I was calling. And so basically I, I kind of laid it out there and, and I said, this is the information my mom gave me about who my father is. And I guess I'm asking who, if you're my father, um, a long pause. And he says, hold up, I need to go in another room. <laughs> so I hear him cover up the phone. I hear him walk to another room. I hear people laughing in the background. And I just got this imagery in my head of, of this guy saying, I got this crazy dude on the phone who thinks I'm his dad. Um, and That's so, not ex- that is, he wasn't thinking that at all. He was thinking like, oh, I remember this. You know, it's, it's interesting because he, <laughs> he gets in the room and his first thing is, now who are you again? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and... And so I start to, to walk through it and I say, you know, I've got, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I'm in school, I'm, I'm a college graduate, I just want to know more about who I am. Um, and he said, you know, after talking to you, regardless of whether or not you're my son, um, you sound like someone I'd want to get to know, so let's exchange information. So we did. Um, and, and I didn't hear from him for a while when I sent him the picture. Um, and I remember I was watching heat mavericks finals game (laughs) um and my wife was my wife was on the email and she pulled it up and all he did was send a picture with nothing and it was blatantly obvious that he was my father like it was there was was not a doubt in the world which by the way he said to himself when i send you this picture we all go know what's up right here (laughs) that's that's right so anthony uh we were kind of running short on time on this segment i want to come back and, and continue your story um I am so glad. Jason has been trying to get you, uh, get me to call you for the longest time. And, you know, life has been kind of crazy of late, as you, we all it know. Been. And I am so grateful we finally got a chance to do this. Uh, we will continue our discussion with Anthony Bates. Uh, you are listening to Voices of Reason. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. 
and there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope and Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Anthony Bates. He's the director of the Student Connection and Leadership Center at Brigham Young University. And he's also involved in the BYU Family, Home, and Social Sciences Civil Rights Seminar. But uh, we want to get to the point of kind of why we're talking to you. Uh, obviously, you're the brother of a, a very dear friend of ours and our uh, business partner, Jason Comstock. But uh, uh, Amy, kind of bring us into why we wanted to have Jason on the show. We wanted Anthony because he gave um, a speech, and I'm not sure the context of the speech, like the march that you were at or, or the event you were at. Um, but if you'll tell us, if you'll set us up with, you know, where you gave this uh, address and why, um, I would love you to read those paragraphs that, uh, that we talked about from your address because I think they're very thought-provoking. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the context for it with the Civil Rights Seminar, um, I had a couple of students who invited me. Um, and if you do a little bit of your civil rights history, um, I'm a little bit more of an A. Philip Randolph. Look that mm -hmm. one up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm not necessarily uh, behind the mic. Uh, and they asked me to, they were organizing a march uh, with Project Blindspot at BYU. Um, and they said, hey, we want you to, to speak. And, and I said, okay. <laughs> um, and, and then I showed up and I was the last speaker, and I'm like, oh, dang, now the pressure's on. Like, that's up a notch. That wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so, uh, really, it was, it was honoring the nearly, so I've worked with 105 students on the Civil Rights Seminar um, over the course of the years. Um, I've been with it for nine years now. Um, it was really, uh, my children have heard me talk about all these civil rights icons and all these amazing people. And really it was a, a tribute and a responsibility to them that, that drove me to do it. I, I wasn't necessarily a marching, that, that wasn't necessarily my MO. Um, but um, so the part that you're referring to, um, before you stand with me or any of my sisters and brothers, you have to sit with us first. Some might say there's too much to do. There's no time to sit. But unfortunately, there are far too many people who do not stop, take a breath, and sit with those they purport to help. They do not, they do not take the time to amplify voices of color, which is must, much different than representing voices of color. They frantically search for solutions without ever fully comprehending the problems of people of color. They plan and they organize without taking the guidance and direction from people of color, the same people who could give them the best strategies. So before you stand with me or any of my sisters and brothers, you'll have to take you'll have to take some time to sit with me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I so for me, I, I you know, Jason and I have had many many conversations. I mean, we started this podcast because of the conversations. Because the conversations we were yeah, having. Yeah, the conversations Absolutely. we yeah. were having, and we came at things differently. We were, you know, some of them were sort of they began as discussion slash debates, but. Um, but, you know, we listen to one another, and I've learned a lot from Jason, and hopefully and vice versa, right? Learned something from me. But, you know, when the George Floyd, um, uh, when he was killed on video in front of all of us for eight minutes and forty-six seconds, we all—I couldn't even watch. 
the entire thing. I still, I yeah. still can't. I still haven't. Um, but I, I just felt this hopelessness, right? And then there have been these protests that have lasted in some places. They haven't stopped. They never stopped. Um, yeah. What do you think is different about this moment? Because I honestly thought after Tamir Rice, this would change. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think Jason and I have. Um, many times so this is the one this is right the situation. This, this is going to be the one mm -hmm. why do you think it's different uh, you know I, I i think as as a black man in this country i need to be completely honest with you mm -hmm. um i i want to hope it's different i hear you okay um i i, I can't I, I i we want to acknowledge that it's going to be different we keep hearing it's going to be different um, and that is an honest, sincere hope that I have. Um, but um, I'm going to need to accept and, and receive uh, and field far many more invitations to sit with me um, where I'm going to see people wanting to, you know, I, I don't. I don't want sound bites. I don't want you know little snippets that I can that I can put on my feed or that I can post on Instagram. I, I genuinely want to understand, and that understanding takes time. It takes investment. It takes clarification um, of things that they're seeing and feeling and experiencing. And and you have to you have to sit and experience those things first. You have to at least understand and know why the situation that's going on. Uh, has impacted me uh, the way that it has. Um, and, and I think it's important, uh, maybe at this juncture, to share a little bit about why this is so meaningful for me. Um, you know, in the process of me finding my father, I, I didn't have, you know, a real strong connection with my African American heritage. And so, civil rights movement, slavery in and of itself was kind of distant because I didn't really have a connection to it. Right, because in know, your um, schools, they really didn't talk about it much. They probably glossed over oh, it. Oh, no, no. It was Rosa Parks, Thurgood Marshall, That's sanitized, it. wiped down. MLK. We're, we're done with it. That's good. We've, we've all moved on. Um, and, and so my father, um, we went back to meet him, um, or one of the trips we made back down there. Where does uh, he live? He is, he's from Maryland. Okay. Uh, he's in Bowie, Maryland. But my roots uh, hail from Florence County, South Carolina. So if I do, when I do my genealogy, there's a, a series of plantations down there. Um, and all of my ancestors uh, spent decades, probably centuries, um, located in that, in that little, little county area. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when my, my great, or when my great grandmother passed away, I went down to her funeral and it was this backwoods baptist con congregation i mean when i went down to see where my great-grandmother lived it was like transporting back in time um and all of a sudden i i connected with that heritage and there was one particular moment where we're driving but by the way it was like the best funeral service i've ever been a part of like the <laughs> pastor had a set of lungs on him oh, i yeah it was amazing um and and we're driving back to my grandma's house and uh we drive past a cotton field and and I asked my brother, um, so this is my this is my half brother. So this is my my father's uh, oh, my father's man. son, yep. um, whose name is Jason, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and and we're driving by this cotton field, and I said, Hey, can can we stop by? I want to I want to take a picture really quick. And as we're getting out of the car, he says one of the most impactful things. This day just reverberates in my ears. 
um, we stepped out of the car and I, I took the picture or went to take the picture and he says I don't know why grandma built a house half a mile from the same stupid field she picked as a child and all this it just hit me so hard um, that that all of the sharecropping slavery civil rights struggle in that moment it all just came down on me and said that is a part of my history that is a part of who I am and 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 I owe something to to that legacy um, and so you know when we, when we get to these moments when you when you place your own ancestry and if the civil rights movement didn't do it um, if if the you know civil war emancipation proclamation civil rights movement didn't do it the riots dr king's death rodney king you, you keep going on and on if that mm -hmm. didn't do it if that didn't do it, if that didn't do it what's going to do it i sure as heck hope that this is the time that that it does it um from, you, from your mouth to god's ears man let me tell you that <laughs> so listen we got to close out this segment when yep. we come back we'll continue the discussion uh, I, I don't want to. I just want to try to keep us on time as much as we can, so everybody gets all of this. Uh, yeah. We're having a great conversation uh, with Anthony Bates, who I, I apparently now is going to be joining our family too, since uh, he's uh, Jason's brother. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to having uh, further this discussion. You are listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And today we're joined by Anthony Bates. He's the director of the Student Connection and Leadership Center at Brigham Young University. And he's also involved in the BYU Family, Home, and Social Sciences Civil Rights Seminar. And he was kind of talking uh, to us in the last segment about his first trip back to South Carolina, which is kind of where his uh, family, uh, much of his family history is. But I was hoping, Anthony, you could kind of connect that to your work with the Civil Rights Seminar uh, as an educator at BYU. Yeah, most definitely. Um, where to start? Um, it, it's an it's an incredible. So, what's the seminar? The the seminar. So, it's a three credit course that we offer in winter, and and really, it's a it's a it's a group of of friends. We call ourselves beloved community, um, just because that's what we're striving to achieve uh, at BYU. And and the philosophy behind it is, you know, I've had multiple people tell me. You know, expand the seminar, expand the seminar, get more people involved. Um, but there's a couple reasons why we can't do that. I think, I think number one, we get the opportunity to actually meet people. Um, Nelson Malden is an incredible friend, not Nelson Mandela. Nelson Malden is an incredible friend of mine, um, and he he was Martin Luther King's barber during the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, we meet um, Reverend Robert Gretz and his wife Jeannie. Who were actually Rosa Parks' pastors when, when he he was her pastor when she did not give up her seat on the bus, um, and and he was the first person she called, um, and and those are the kind of people that we get to meet. And so if you expand it to a tour group of like 50, 60, 70 people, you 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 lose that intimacy. Um, and and the second reason that it's it's intentionally kept small is because we're trying to build community and so rather than rather than build community through panel discussions and speakers and bringing in prominent people 
uh, our intent is to try to try to um, try to empower and try to help give uh, community to students of color, uh, primarily those of African ancestry on campus, so that when they go out into a class where they're the only uh, student of color in the classroom, they know that they've constantly got a community of color they can turn back to um, and recharge and then go back out and, and fight the good fight. Um, and so when we, we go in this seminar, we go through the history of the, of the black freedom struggle all the way from pre-slavery all the way to modern times. And then that culminates in us going, um, going to Atlanta. So we go to Georgia, uh, we go to Selma, we go to Birmingham, we go to Montgomery, we go to Anniston. Um, and we, we pay respects uh, at all those um, hallowed sites. In, in my mind, those are hallowed sites Absolutely. Of, of where these things played out. Um, and then we go to ed, you know, institutions of education and just absorb the sights and sounds uh, of the movement. And, and it's as much processing and dialogue with the students about their own experience as it is actually being there. And, and that place provides the context uh, for that to happen. And, and you know, if I, if I kind of bring it full circle, so last year, um, not this past year, unfortunately, COVID um, put the, <laughs> put the, the stop on, on this that. year's group. Yeah. yeah. So, but in 2019, uh, we went to the Equal Justice Initiative, the, the lynching memorial mm -hmm. um, that Brian Stevenson uh, put together. Um, and, and when you go to that, there's, there's one particular exhibit um, in the museum before you actually go into the memorial itself. And I mean, when I walked into the when I walked in the museum, I mean, the, the first three intro videos they had were just, I, I was already in tears. Um, and I'd been down there seven years before that. And, you know, I've been emotional and all those kind of things. But this new exhibit and this new museum was just so raw. And it wasn't sensationalizing any of the, you know, any of the elements of slavery or anything like that. It was just raw and real. And the first three intro videos, I was done. Like, I was, like, emotional. I was spent. And I hadn't even actually gone into the museum <laughs> itself. But then, you know, I step into the next exhibit, and it's a whole series of holographic images of, of slaves who are incarcerated. Um, and they are varying pleas and varying... Um, expressions of anguish and longing and there's one that's a cell with two kids in it who are calling for their mom um, and me and my friend Ryan Gabriel who's a professor here on campus we were both in there at the same time and we just broke down sobbing um, right there in the museum um, and it was just such a real um, raw experience and 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 this these are the kind of interactions we have with these students where where we sit down and we talk about their reality and some of them are are putting words and language and dialogue to to experiences they've had for years but now they're finally getting a voice to it they're they're getting a way to comprehend it um and then they're in the process of of trying to to deal with it and figure out what it means for them. And so we, we very intentionally within this framework try to not only provide support leading up to it, support during it, but support afterwards and, and try to maintain as much contact with these students as, as we possibly can because 
we feel a high degree of responsibility to, you know, we expose them to this, this civil rights history that is, that is not pretty, that's not the ones that we get in our textbooks. Ever. It's, it, no, it's, it's, it's Emmett Till, um, and, and, and it's four little girls at 16th Street Baptist mm-hmm. and right. Medgar Evers and, and all these people that we don't, we don't get because it forces us to have to confront um, the actual reality and the history uh, that everyone's American experience was not the same experience. Um, so when you go uh, talk to these uh, young people, and these are all, uh, these are non-people of color, these are white kids mostly. And no, they're actually mostly students of color. So do you, how many uh, non-students of color do you have going on these uh, excursions? Um, you mean white we, kids? How many white yes. kids? <laughs> <laughs> um, we there are maybe one to two uh, on average. So not that many willing to make that trip. Actually, we have we have quite a few that apply. Um, we have quite a few that apply, and, and unfortunately, I'd, I'd love to be able to admit more. Um, but we uh, we are looking for students who can can be allies to these students of color mm-hmm. that can will take the time to listen that will take the time to humble themselves and spend less time talking and less time rationalizing and and more time processing um and and sitting with the students who are going through a very through a uh, a very difficult experience so um, that that's the beautiful part of it most of them are are actually students of color um and this is one of the first times on campus that they've been in a in a majority minority (laughs) class on campus. When, uh, when we come back, we'll uh, kind of move this forward a little bit and see what the work he's doing, what, what the work that Anthony's doing with the seminar can do to help in the, the climate we're in today and, and what kind of conversations can be had that hopefully can uh, enlighten all of us and, and move us in a positive direction. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by Anthony Bates, director of the Student Connection and Leadership Center at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and also involved in the BYU Family, Home, and Social Sciences Civil Rights Seminar, which is kind of what we've been talking about most recently. And, uh, you know, Anthony, you, you gave a, a very good sense of, you know, the, the um, kind of the, the raw kind of uh, just connection you get in, in kind of participating and going to these sites and then having this true connection with people who can offer you information and understanding that you wouldn't get by just kind of walking through with, uh, with your own family. Uh, how do you use those, this kind of experience, this kind of curriculum to connect with what's going on today and, and, and hopefully, you know, kind of advance the conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, at the, Right around the time that we were getting ready to go um, this year, uh, literally BYU shut down travel um, uh, three days after we decided that it probably wouldn't be safe for us to go. Um, and, and I called my friend Nelson just to see how he was doing and to deliver him the news that, that we wouldn't be heading down that direction. Um, and I asked him what the, what the situation, the status was down there, and it was it was 
really heart wrenching for me because, um, you know, the, the first time I called him, when I called him this time, he, he basically said, you know, we don't, we've only had one reported case. And, and I told Nelson, we don't want to be the reason to introduce more COVID cases into Alabama. Um, and he said, well, you know, we, we hope y'all can make it down, all those kind of things. And it really, I didn't think much of it. And then as things worsened and things got more difficult, um, with COVID, I, I called my, my friend Nelson again, and I just wanted to check on him, see how he was doing. And within a two month span, we'd gone from one case to a public health crisis. Um, and, and he said the communities of color are being disproportionately affected. Um, hospitals are filling up. Uh, and, and he said that story is not very palatable for other people to hear um, because it's bad for business. Mm. Um, and, and there's, there's a little degree of when, when you hear your friend talk about communities and people that you care about, there's a feeling of expendability, um, in, in those sentiments that that's expressed and, and that has persisted. Um, and, and I think that that kind of arrives at the, at the point that we're right now when, when we talk about black lives matter. Um, the, the, the video footage can't serve a purpose for the bottom dollar when you, when you hire a black CEO because you're, you're under pressure to do that. Uh, it, it can't be, um, you know, uh, something you, you, you throw out for a PR stunt to, to try to drum up business so that you can come across as a social justice warrior. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a systematic, intentional, we are getting at the root of our organiza- organization, our corporation. We're, we're looking at what this, how have we arrived at the point that we're at right now um, and, and reverse engineering this um, so that we can start to account uh, for some of these things um, so that black lives do matter because they're not expendable anymore. Um, they're valued just as much as as any other person, and we care just as much um, uh, when an unpublished murder or non-videoed murder mm-hmm. goes out there than one that is just horrific and that we almost can't watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we start to care uh, about communities of color and going in and realizing that these instances are happening all the time and this suffering is happening all the time, but we have the luxury of only having, having to deal with it when it's in front of our face. Abner we don't Luima actually, was killed was by New, Abner Luima is a name most people won't remember, but in the 90s, he was one of the first people that I remember killed by police. He was in New York City. He was going into um, his, the, the, um, his vestibule in his, uh, in his building. The cops are there for something else, and they uh, ask him to show his ID. He goes to reach for his wallet, and all hell breaks loose, and they kill him in a hail of bullets. Yeah. And there were, we didn't see that. So people have forgotten about it. It's yeah. difficult to make that connection because, like you said, there's no images that stick out in people's minds. The, the true change in the civil rights movement didn't happen until we saw uh, Emmett Till's picture, till yep. we uh, understood that we saw the dogs and the hoses until uh, we watch John Lewis and get beaten yeah. on Edmund right. Pettus Bridge. Absolutely. 
Yep. And so that's what I, I, I feel like this is what you're talking about, being able mm -hmm. to make the true connection, not necessarily, I mean, you, the pictures help so much. Yep. But there were also all these lives that were lost before that we don't have pictures of, and they were just as important. And, and I think the, the emotion, the, the emotion lasts for a while, um, but the emotion gets exhausting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so sometimes when you're, when you're exhausted with that emotion, you just kind of want to push it away and I want to I do something else. But I think we need to engage with this on an intellectual level. You know, and I, and I talk a lot to, um, with my last, last couple of cohorts that we've done with the Civil Rights Seminar, I think this country will be ready to change when they are as willing to grapple with the anger and the brashness of Malcolm X as they are the supposed peace yeah. and harmony that they want to placate themselves on with Martin Luther King's story. When, when they value and justify the anger just as much as they do the, the, the warm fuzzies that they get mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, from, from I Have a Dream yeah. um, and actually engage with the fact that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were actually at a crossroads and they were actually at the point of kind of both of their death. They were almost on an, an opposite trajectory where Malcolm X was coming to the realization of some things mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King Jr. was actually getting a little more radical yeah. and, and, and wasn't that well regarded nope. um, in, in most communities. When, when we want to grapple with that and actually come to terms with that and, and break it out and look at it and examine it and say, why are both of these legitimate? Well, then I, I, and think I would we'll add get to, to that. Spot. I would add to that, Anthony. I think for the, in the conversations I've had with my white relatives and friends, when they're willing to understand the anger and and see it and and and, and not dismiss it or use that as an excuse not to listen or not to see the message as value, valid, um, that when when they focus more on what's being said rather than how it's being delivered to them, um, that's what I think. And I have seen some of that. Um, yeah. obviously there's still people who are focused on, um, people's anger. Why are they so angry? You know? And, and I just remember, you know, this has been a conversation I've had on a number of issues, LGBTQ issues as well. Um, wouldn't you be upset if you were in their shoes? Wouldn't you understand the pain? I mean, this is generational. And yeah. so when people are frustrated or, um, or they have a quick fuse, I, I understand it. I think when we get to that point in, in businesses where an employee can be frustrated and not have to worry about, you know, saying it in a nice way. Jason and I have had these conversations, you know, you, <laughs> you have an issue to address, but you're like, how should I deliver this message to these people? Because they can't handle how I really feel. When yeah. we're all free to be as angry or as frustrated or as sad um, or as disappointed as we actually feel, then I think we, we can really truly start to to remedy these things you know for the future and and i think if i can if i can i imagine we're probably getting to the point where we need this yeah, so if you could say do this pretty quickly yeah i i think one of the things that when people of color particularly in the community and we talk about you know relating it to provo mm -hmm. when i wake up in the morning and i look in the mirror um i have to go through a mental walkthrough of my day i have to, to go through a mental walkthrough of who i'm going to interact with who i'm going to talk to um, how they might perceive me, how do I need to negotiate, um, what those things look like. 
And how do I give them the best opportunity to know who I am without all of the noise and static that has been potentially heaped on their perception of who I might be without ever getting to know me so that they can actually get to know who I am. Um, and and it's, it's been a, a really challenging experience, I think, particularly at this time, particularly in this place that we're in. You know, I'm a father of seven. I'm a husband. Um, I'm a doctoral student, I'm a university employee, but I've been called out in a grocery line because someone thought my big cart of groceries that I had at four o'clock in the morning, I was actually buying with food stamps. Um, I've been called out at a restaurant recently um, because how could I not support, um, not support what he believed were tried and true conservative values and, and still work at BYU um, and basically he called me out because I was wearing a BYU shirt and I was I was almost called out for being brown while representing BYU <laughs> um, and and it was it was a really sobering experience and so um, when when you talk about that anger when you have those experiences time and time again it, it takes mental and emotional energy to continue to work through those and you have to recharge and when there's limited opportunities for people of color to recharge, then, then that's where we start to see um, some of these flare-ups and, and these things that, that don't represent uh, necessarily, not that I say don't represent, but, but don't, people can't get in touch, they can't understand where it's coming from. Um, and so they, they exp give it other explanations or give it other, uh, other Character uh, meanings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, I hope we get to have you back again because there's lots of discussions and this could, we, could, we could go on for so much more time. But I want to yes. thank you very much for joining us. It has uh, been our pleasure to have you on our show. Oh, thank you. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vrrjasonl at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.